You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and this is International Students and Online Learning. Welcome to For the Record. Thanks for listening. Funny story. Back on July 6th, the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, SEVP, caused a stir when they issued a directive relating to the requirements for international students to maintain an active student record in SEVIS for the fall semester. Basically, saying that students whose institutions were moving online for the fall had to either leave the country or transfer to another institution that was offering in-person classes. Pretty ridiculous. A number of lawsuits were filed and a whole bunch of institutions scrambled to make or adjust their plans in order to make sure that international students weren't forced to make wildly disruptive decisions about their education in the middle of a global pandemic. Fortunately, on July 14th, Bastille Day, SEVP rescinded the guidance they had issued on July 6th. That's not a perfect solution, as you'll hear about from Steve Springer, the Director, Regulatory Practice Liaison at NAFSA, Association of International Educators. Part of this episode was recorded between the time the guidance was issued and when it was rescinded. And Jay Ligon, Director of the International Student and Scholar Services at Louisiana Tech University, and Rob Berwick, AVP and Registrar at Jacksonville University, share their institution's efforts at accommodating international students during this challenging time. So let's start with Steve. We're joined today by Steve Springer from NAFSA. I appreciate you taking the time, Steve, to chat with us about some of the craziness that has been going on over the last couple of weeks and really over the last several months for our international students studying here in the United States. And so before we jump in and talk about the last couple of weeks, it might be good to have a baseline understanding for people. What are the normal requirements for an international student. Let's imagine that there's not a COVID pandemic going on. Cast your memory back to fall of 2019, and I'm an international student studying in the United States. What are my requirements to do that? Okay, sure. And and Doug, I should probably start out by saying that, you know, everybody would want to verify what I'm saying today. You know, this is a very, (laughs) this is a very fast moving situation. And, you know, the regulations were very complicated before they got more complicated with all of the drama of this summer. So, you know, just, just check these out before you operate on anything I'm saying here. And so I I think if I'm going to bring it down to the, the, the most uh, at issue part of the regulations through this pandemic, it's been the requirement that students um, enroll for a full course of study. And so one of the complications of that, that's in the regulations, it's required by the regulations. And one of the complications of that is that it's different for different levels. So for example, undergraduate students are required to enroll in 12 semester hours or the equivalent. And, uh, you know, there are different requirements for, let's say, uh, English as a second language students 
And for graduate students, the school gets to determine what's a full course of study. So there's a little more uh, sort of school decision-making to that. A little wiggle room there. Yes, exactly. And of course, they, they have to you know, justify it and be careful in doing so. And most universities are. And I think by far the common uh, course load for graduate students is about nine semester hours. And so there's also a regulation that says toward that full course of study, you may only count one online course. And it goes on to define, uh, we, we wish maybe a little better, but it goes on to define what is online. And again, you'll want to read this when it's a a bit longer, but I'll just summarize it by saying they define an online course as one that takes um, place primarily online, you know, through technology and does not have a, um, an in-person component that is essential to the class. So we've normally thought of, of the inverse of that being not online. In, a, in other words, if there's a class, you know, we, you know, this is so common now in higher ed that you have a sort of a flipped classroom where you do a lot of the work outside the class and then you only come to the class maybe, I don't know, once a week or every couple of weeks or something like that. And I, I think that's not understood to be an online class because it does require this essential in-person component. So right. those are the two things we're dealing with. You've got to register for a full course of study and only one of those courses can be uh, online, basically. So when schools say, hey, we're going all online, well, that's a big problem uh, under the old regulations. Or when schools say, you know, you can, you can do half online and half in person, something like that, that's, that can be a big problem. Right. And so in March, when a number of institutions responded to the pandemic by pushing everything online, what was the guidance that was given then? And how did that affect international students' abilities to continue their studies? Yeah. So, you know, I should, I should say on, beh- on behalf of that guidance that now it, it seems sorely lacking you know, because we're trying to apply it to a new situation. But, but back in the spring, it was, it was very helpful. And, you know, anytime an agency puts out guidance, there are always going to be some questions and maybe, you know, we think they got a word wrong or something like that. But the guidance was very helpful. I think that SEVP, uh, like many of the rest of us, assumed that this would be a short-term situation. And I think they were thinking, you know, how are we going to operate until the end of spring term? And then probably everything will be fine. And who knows, maybe we'll have a second wave, you know, next winter or something like that. And so I don't think either they or anybody else uh, thought that we would be here in this situation trying to apply this old guidance for spring to fall. So with that said, it was very helpful. It basically, you know, you you know, again, you'll want to read the guidance, which is pretty short and then the very helpful FAQs. But the guidance basically said that, you know, when you make these operational changes as a university, when you go online or when you go hybrid or, or, you know, when you make any of these other major operational changes, you have to let SEVP know within 10 days of that change by basically contacting the SEVP response center. And uh, I, my understanding of that is they've been helpful. There have been no sort of 
you know, unusual pushbacks or anything or denials of those changes or anything like that. The, the important, one important thing to know about the guidance is that it did not really speak to new students. It, it didn't anticipate that it needed to address new students coming in for the fall. So it really just spoke to students who are here in the spring. What can they do? And to make a long story short, it basically said, you know, it's, if the school goes online, it's okay if the students you know, complete their coursework online. Basically, they waived that requirement that you could only do uh, one course online. Uh, they allowed for hybrid. They didn't define hybrid, and that was one thing that a lot of schools wanted to know, you know, is what, what do you mean by hybrid? And they, they didn't do that. They basically spoke of a, uh, you know, if a school goes to a hybrid operation, they need to report that to SEVP, and, and that's okay. And the only thing they really said about new students was they said SEVP is not encouraging any specific action regarding new students outside the U.S. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and not to get too far off on a tangent, but they also made some nice accommodations for students who left the U.S., you know, maybe because of safety concerns or whatever, and continued yep. their coursework online from outside the U.S. They basically allowed the school to keep the SEVIS record open, so it was really good for the students to you know, be a continuing student and, and, you know, accruing their time toward practical training and other things, uh, even though they were outside of the country. So very helpful guidance back in March. Right on. And then jumping ahead again, flash forward two weeks ago, or I guess now we're almost three weeks ago, July 6th, new, new guidance was issued um, that I understand rolled back the March guidance and said, hey, students, international students, you need to take the regular, you're under, you're operating under the regular set of requirements again. Uh, and talk us through sort of how that came about, what the response was, and ultimately um, what happened with that guidance. Okay. Yeah, so the July 6 guidance, um, it, it did roll back a little bit about what happened uh, in March. It said that it, it basically, if I can summarize it, it indicated that uh, all online course uh, schedule was not allowed, basically. And, you know, I, I mean, I understand from an outsider's perspective you know, if you you know if, if you're only looking at the simple question, you know, should students from other countries be allowed to come here and take all their courses online? I mean, I think a lot of people would say no, right? But when you say, well, wait a minute, there's a pandemic and there are these other factors, and what if the school decides to go online, uh, you know, in in October, or what if the school decides to go? Uh, you know, in person in October. So all these different variables, it sort of didn't account for those. And a lot of NAFSANs were very disappointed in it. And it took away the school's flexibility, which is what we've argued for all along. And so the uh, agency said, look, we're putting out this guidance and we'll be coming out soon with a temporary rule in the federal register. And People were not happy. Uh, lawsuits were filed. <laughs> <laughs> lawsuits were filed by universities and states. Uh, happily, uh, I was happy to see a lot of states got involved in a lawsuit. NAFSA was participating in them by uh, submitting amicus briefs and in some other ways. And so 
basically at the hearing, the, the first hearing in the case uh, on July 14, which was what, eight days after the guidance came out, DHS agreed that it would rescind that guidance. Now, just uh, again, to back up a little bit, the whole time we were doing advocacy about this, you know, NAFSA, we were working with other associations and other people and, you know, law firms and universities. And they were saying, you know, we've, we've got to go back to the March guidance. And we would say, well, wait a minute, not, not exactly. That's not exactly what we need because that that doesn't fix the problem either. And then, and we were also trying to say, you know, when you do away with the guidance only, that causes us some problems. So we need to argue in favor of doing away with the July guidance and putting a more flexible set of guidelines in place for fall. And a more holistic one that contemplates new students. Exactly. And, you know, again, you can see all of what we advocated for on our website, we put forward three letters to the agencies. And I'll, I'll summarize it just by saying we wanted them to take the approach that it's an active SEVIS record that matters, not your location. So give, let students have an active SEVIS record, let them study wherever they want to. And then that way, schools have the flexibility to say, hey, we're going online. I mean, sorry, we're going in person in October. So you can come then. Or, you know, gosh, we've had an outbreak and we're going online only in October. So you'll have to just do your classes online. You know, give that kind of flexibility. This is a pandemic. The July 6th guidance didn't do it. And so then you're right. When when that was withdrawn, now we're back to, you know, this guidance, which doesn't, the, the March guidance, which does not apply well to the fall. It never, it never uh, envisioned the fall. Right. It hadn't really contemplated any of the questions beyond the immediacy of the spring semester. Exactly. And then for the new, since it didn't address new students, then we're back to the old regulations for new students. So they, they right. say you have to have an in-person course load, basically. So it's a, it's a big mess right now. If there's any hopeful news, uh, a number of our NAFSA members have heard from their SEVP field representatives that SEVP is working on new guidance. And I was actually hoping that would be out by the time we were recording this. So it could be more fulfilling for people. But we're still waiting for that guidance to come out. And I assume that it will be more uh, uh, broader guidelines than they tried to get out in July, just because that had such a negative, uh, you know, blowback for them. But we don't know what yeah, that, that is yet, and it's obviously an understatement. Yeah, and and it's late. You know, it's late August. I'm uh, sorry. It's it feels like late August. It's I know, late, I know. <laughs> it's late July. So like we need this immediately. And I don't know if you've if you've followed this, but. In the last week or 10 days, there's also just been chaos at the consulates as well. Yes. You know, they've they've started. So, you know, in addition to wondering if the law is going to let people come here, then we have to say, well, you know, even if it does, if if, if our school is going to open and let's say we're going to do hybrid courses, uh, you know, with some some in person and some online, are you going to be able to get a visa to come here? And for a long time, that was looking like no. Luckily, the consulates have begun reopening. And to their credit, we 
we've hammered on them for months now about you've got to prioritize student and exchanges or visas because, you know, it that's not like a trip to Disney World for a tourist visa. You, you've got a specific start date. And if you can't be here by that start date, it's catastrophic for your educational program. So to their credit, they've been prioritizing student uh, visa applications. But of course, there are still um, travel bans in place that affect yep. students from a lot of countries. And there are some happy waivers. They're called exceptions. There are some exceptions being made to those travel bans, but they're so informally put out to the public that it's hard to know about them. Like their Department of State is not putting out uh, clear, you know, you know, formal guidance about this. It's kind of news items on their website. But for example, I don't know if, if you follow the Schengen zone and UK and Ireland, uh, they, this Department of State has basically just said there's a blanket waiver for F&M students from those areas, which is fantastic news. It took some time for that to get out to all the consulates. And uh, then there was some chaos about whether, you know, the the uh, July guidance required you to have a notation on the I-20s, you know, some, some notation about you having in-person coursework. And so right, exactly. Even at, yeah, even after that was rescinded, some of the consulates were asking for it. We just saw, a, a, or we just uh, have seen evidence that Department of State has notified all the consulates day before yesterday, stop asking for that. So awesome. I hope we'll see a little bit better uh, progress there. Yeah. And ideally, we'll see more of the consulates opening and yeah. working through some of the backlog. Waving in-person interviews. We've asked them to do that. That would speed things along. Yep. Steve, thank you for taking some time today to give us sort of this overview. This is a situation that is developing uh, and hopefully will continue to develop in a way that is a positive influence on international students' ability to both be in the United States, come to the United States, and continue their studies at institutions of higher education here in the United States. So. I appreciate you taking some time sharing your thoughts and your insight from NAFSA. And we at ACRO uh, work with NAFSA on a bunch of different things and appreciate you and your expertise and your willingness to share it. So thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, ACRO is a, a valuable ally. So we appreciate everything you've been doing as well. I'm joined today by Rob Berwick, AVP and Registrar at Jacksonville U, and Jay Lagan, Director of International Student and Scholar Services at Louisiana Tech University. Rob, Jay, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, again, my name is Rob Berwick, Assistant Vice President and Registrar at Jacksonville University. I'm helping in other areas or overseeing some other areas, including career services, international students. I, I'm supporting uh, both the admissions and continuing pieces of those, as well as some other uh, student support areas in our in our new uh, environment here. JU is a somewhat small to, to medium-sized institution. We're about 4,200 students at both the undergraduate and graduate level, mainly based in the liberal arts. We're a uh, private institution located in Jacksonville, Florida. 
In addition to that, we are a colleague school that utilizes, a, as most institutions do, a lot of third-party software such as Slate, and we're onboarding Starfish as well to help with our student success initiatives. We have about 150 to 175 international students, uh, and we also have a pretty robust study abroad program. Fantastic. Thanks. And Jay, give us a little background for you and your institution. Sure. I uh, came to Louisiana Tech out of the intensive English program industry, was brought in to help boost our international awareness, and uh, been in charge of things like recruiting, marketing, admissions, along with uh, the usual ISSS task. Louisiana Tech is uh, a doctoral university, some fantastic uh, STEM programs. We have a strong number of international students coming to us from South Asia, but we also have a lot of uh, interest uh, stemming out of Latin America as well as East Asia, and Africa is a big um, hot area for us. We use Workday as our um, student management system, and we're about to join Slate. So we're talking today about the recent guidance that was delivered by the SEVP, and that guidance was more flexible in spring as most institutions moved to an online delivery mode in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. For fall, they have said for students on F1 visas that if the student is enrolled in a 100% online program, that that international student will need to return to their home country. Jay, I'm going to start with you. Tell us a little bit about your response to that guidance, which is really a directive, ways that you are reaching out to your students, and any considerations that you are making with your students. Sure. When we came across this July 6th, there was a bit of a scramble. Uh, We were reaching out to stakeholders in the university, trying to come up with a... um, a response, how we're going to handle this, and how we're going to deliver that message to our students. The university um, got together and uh, with the guidance of uh, Dr. Ramu Ramachandran, uh, VP and Dean in grad school, and uh, Tanya Smith, the executive director for university communications, we were able to put together something that we sent up to the president and, and were able to grasp his approval on it. And we were quite happy with that. Essentially, what we decided after focus grouping with uh, several students and also setting up a poll in our international uh, student group me was that the primary concern was, I want to continue my education in the U.S. My office, one of our main purposes is to be able to empower students to reach their social, academic, and professional goals. So if their academic goal was to study in the U.S., we wanted to step up and make that a possibility. Uh, We were able to do that with the support of the stakeholders I mentioned. And now Louisiana Tech has officially announced uh, that we will be using a hybrid model for the fall and are happy to ease the uncertainty that those students were experiencing. Rob, same question for you with your experience at Jacksonville, you at JU. How did you communicate this directive with your international students and what sorts of considerations have you made with them and for them? Yeah, so we started really 
one of those things where we plan for one sort of group or mass of our students that really is going to benefit our international students. So we announced fairly early on that we were committed to returning students to campus, and we have put in several plans and ways to do that. And we've created a hybrid model. We've created a flex model where we have students attending a course in person. So half the class would attend in person on a given day. The other half of the class is streaming, could be from their res hall, could be off campus, depending on uh, where they're living. And then that that class would flip. And so the the, uh, students who were streaming would then come in to campus on the other day. And that helps alleviate a lot of our classroom space and allows our students to social distance. So by doing that, we were already in a position by the time the announcement came out to assist our international students. The other thing that we did is our um, international uh, office for continuing students sent out a a survey to students in, uh, I think it was late May, early June, to figure out where they were. Did they return home when uh, we left campus in March? Did they stay in the United States? you know, just to, to find out what their plans were. And this was after the, the spring semester ended. And that really helped us uh, find out who our students are and where they're at and what their concerns are. And, and we asked what their concerns were. So we do have some students who are in a country that is going to be very difficult to return to the United States. So we're working on plans for those students. We're also, we have students in the United States who have now raised concerns about returning to campus and, and their health and well-being. And so now we're working with those particular students to come up with plans for them to make them feel comfortable. But similar to Jay, we are here to support those students and, and we're going to be flexible in how we do that. And like I said, it really, it was because of our pre-planning. By the time the announcement came out, we were in a better position. Not that didn't that didn't cause some angst, but um, it allowed us to, to really respond. So now we're reaching out to the students who didn't respond to our survey individually. And our provost has really taken the lead on that. And she is going to be reaching out to students individually to, to um, really find out wh- how we can best support them and, and allow them to continue their education and assist them in uh, either returning to the United States, if they're here, finding ways that they can, under the, the sort of new guidance or rolled back guidance, whatever you want to call it, really assist them in, in staying in the United States and, and continuing their education. Right on. We at Mason had about 80% of our international students remain in the United States, which is helpful because it's easier to coordinate with them here. But again, we're doing some of that similar outreach to say, you know, for where are you and will you be returning to campus in the fall? And now we had announced also a hybrid return, safe return to campus plan that involves online learning, hybrid learning, flex classes, and some 100% face-to-face. But Rob, being in Florida and having the COVID numbers climb the way that they have over the last couple of days and really weeks, how has that affected any of your institution's plans for the fall? Yeah, that's a great question. Something certainly we're keeping an eye on. We really haven't had a retraction of enrollment from any of our student populations, including our international, but we are getting more and more questions. And because we've been very specific on how we are handling the residential life situation, how we're handling dining, our questions really have been about, you know, 
we know that you're doing these things, but some of our families want a little bit of a financial guarantee. You know, if we do need to vacate campus, are they going to get some sort of refund? It's been very interesting to see the kinds of questions that have risen to the top, given everything that's going on. We have from students themselves, we are, they are sort of checking to make sure that we are going to make sure that they're safe the best way that we can. And, you know, it's always a leg. So as we're doing this outreach to students, we're probably going to hear more and more about their concerns. Uh, But what's been great is that they've actually been reaching out to us so we can answer their specific questions in detail. You know, a lot of them will say, we've read the plan. We understand what our class schedule says when it means flex, but I have some specific questions or concerns. And we've addressed those uh, for the most part. And then the question, the students that have more complex situations, we're really, we have a team that works, that is working on that, that is made up of our housing staff, our student life staff, academic staff, that just comes together to kind of talk about the, the more complex issues. But we're really in a, at this point, we haven't made any uh, specific changes to our, our fall plan. We had already reduced our classroom sizes to 25 to 50%, depending on the, the furniture in the classroom. And we already took a pretty conservative approach to you know, how students move in, if they're coming in from outside of the United States, that once they get here, we have a mandatory 14-day uh, waiting period for them to come on to campus. We're being a little bit flexible. We moved up our start date one week. So we're being a little bit flexible with the start of classes as much as we possibly can uh, to try to mitigate all those concerns. But it certainly has ramped up over the past uh, week or so as the cases in Florida have exploded. Yeah, definitely. And Jay, are you, as the Director of International Student Scholar Services, are you doing any specific outreach to international students related to COVID beyond the guidance from SEVP? What types of issues are they bringing to you and how are you addressing those? Sure. So our university, um, and specifically our international community, has a very close relationship. I'm on GroupMe with our international students. They all have my WhatsApp number. Uh, WhatsApp's on our, uh, my WhatsApp uh, chat features on um, the ISO page. I mean, access is key. <laughs> you know, they, they know how to get a hold of me and they do. Um, and that makes things a lot easier for us because uh, we're able to then um, really tap into what the needs are, what the concerns are. And, uh, and students have been very open with it. July 6th, when the announcement came, you know, uncertainty wreaked havoc. The, the message boards were, were popping and pinging and there was lots going on. And so, uh, so us being able to find that information, uh, we were able to work with it. But in the same sense, uh, we use these same, you know, communication platforms to ensure that we're doing that in other areas. So, you know, finances were a big concern when a lot of this happened. And, um, and with the CARES Act that wasn't available to international students, uh, we opened it up and asked students what they need. And, um, and then we did a big fundraising campaign and were able to provide $20,000 to, um, to some international students that were in significant need. And those donations are still coming. And all of that stemmed out of having access to us. So the students are able to let us know these are our concerns and we're able to respond. I think I think that's a key thing that that I'm I'm really proud of my institution, and I think the way we're going to continue moving forward. Other questions that we're getting are things like, uh, what if I don't want to come back to the U.S.? 
you know, and, and of course our answer is well, absolutely, you can study online. Uh, we want you to do whatever you feel is best for yourself and to reach those goals that I mentioned earlier in the, in the call. So I, I think that, um, that the, the questions coming from the students are valid because they're real sincere concerns. Our responses have been um, authentic and uh, well-researched and um, basically the university's kind of cohesively together on this. So we're going to make sure that everything works as best as we certainly can. I think that's great. It's always so important to take a student-first approach in these types of situations. One question that I have for both of you, and for the record, is a registrar-focused podcast. And so, Rob, you are the registrar. And Jay, I'm interested in sort of your relationship with the registrar's office. How do you work with the registrar? What are ways that registrar's offices can be of assistance in this specific case? I think, you know, the registrar role, of course, changes every time we have crisis like this. And I think it's important that the registrar take a lead role in accommodating students and for all everything from what we show students on a system and to, you know, to allow them to make informed choices all the way through being part of teams that are being responsive to students. We have a unique view of sort of a, a what the student has done in their academic career, but also, you know, what we see moving forward. We, we do an awful lot of planning ahead and we tend to be sort of, uh, in a lot of cases, the voice of reasons on campuses. And so I know when, you know, the news broke about rolling it back, there was a lot of people that started to, to ask me on our campus of, you know, what can we do? What are my thoughts on it? And so it's really been, you know, being plugged into the university is key. And if a registrar is not getting these types of questions or not being part of this, they need to butt their way in. So it's inviting themselves to meetings or just showing up uh, to meetings or to, uh, you know, reaching out to students, whatever it, it may be. At our, you know, in our particular situation, there was a lot of work done by my staff to really support everything that was going on. So one of the keys in, in, in a crisis like this is making sure that stuff is visible, making sure that, you know, if we're saying that courses are flexible, what does that mean? So making sure that we have information on the web, making sure that our courses are labeled and are clear to students, and then assisting students when they do want to make changes. So we told our students, look at your course schedule. We have updated delivery methods for all of them. And let's really look at if you need to make a change, we're here to support you and, and maybe doing some things a little bit differently than you've done in the past. It can be kind of messy, but I, I think, um, it, you know, again, as we've talked about being responsive to the students and, and the registrar supporting those efforts um, or the registrar's office supporting those efforts is key in, in making all that happen. Thanks. And Jay, any input on that? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because um, I consider the registrar in, um, in my university to be a great colleague and, and some really dear friends. Uh, they invited me to join ACRO. Um, so, so I think that relationship is, uh, is one I certainly cherish. I would have to say that they always step in for us um, in regards to what benefits the international students. And one of the key ways that that happened in the midst of COVID was with the um, addition of the Duolingo English test. So when we had to uh, suddenly make it available so that we could have students be admitted to the university when TOEFL was not properly online, nor was the IELTS at that point, 
we we looked at Duolingo. It was really attractive. We have a lot of students who come from price sensitive markets, so we uh, immediately jumped to that with forty nine dollar test fee. It was just kind of a no brainer for us. Uh, looked at the uh, reliability, the validity of the test. It was really strong and. Uh, we were kind of going to the registrar wondering, are we going to be shooed away or, or told have a seat? And uh, and they, they really jumped and made sure that we were able to do this and implement it into our um, our student management system. That, that was great. And that's the kind of support we get from that office on all matters. That's great to hear that the registrar's office was helpful and receptive. That's what we aim for. That's the, that's the goal. <laughs> Well, that you are. <laughs> Gentlemen, are there any other comments, words of advice, or suggestions that you had for other institutions, things that you would advise people to consider or look at as they contemplate working with their international students as a result of this guidance? One thing that I, I see is a lot of institutions give more weight to their domestic side of the house. Um, usually it's a, the larger body of students. And so a lot of the questions that our international students have don't necessarily, uh, I don't see them getting addressed by a lot of uh, institutions through things like FAQs or other resources like that. I think that uh, there's a real opportunity here for universities to to show their awareness for the population and for its concerns. And I think more than anything, you know, we, we've heard the, uh, the wash your hands, uh, you know, the social distancing, the wear a mask. Uh, but, but I think beyond that, there's a sense of uncertainty that's just undeniable. And getting to the root of what's causing that uncertainty uh, in each little section of your school population, I think, is key. And allowing those students to have access to, to you is, is certainly the way to do that, or one way. I just, I just think without, without having the time or energy to listen to our students and, and figure out what they need and how we can provide it, uh, we lose um, lose our values and our competitive advantage at the same time. When the news broke, um, which is typical of anything that comes out of SEVP, it seems, everybody's hair was on fire, so to speak, and, and there was a lot of surprise reaction to the news, and, and you know, for some understandable reasons, but I think what's really important right now is taking a step back and doing some of the things we've talked about, really listening to your students to find out what their needs are. And, you know, one thing that I think helped calm down some of the folks at my own institution were that if you take a look at where our students are in terms of, you know, where, what their status is and, and are they in the U.S. or the outside of the U.S. or they, do, do they desire to continue their education? Do they need to take a step back? You're left with a smaller part of the population that you really need to be concerned about. So the students that, um, you know, either have health concerns who it's going to be difficult to find ways to get them into a a face-to-face class, you know, students who can't get back into the United States and have a really hard time learning online. So really trying to narrow down sort of your problem set because we're dealing with a lot right now. And so trying to do that, then listening to those students is really important. And that can help with that. I mean, if you're an institution that's already announced that they're going to be 100% online, really take a step back and find out, okay, you know, how many students do you have? And what are some of the things that you can do to to try to help that population 
Um, and there's a variety of things that could be done, but you know, it's, it's institutional on whether your institution can handle that or support those students. But again, if we narrow it down to a smaller problem or as small as we can make it, it's less overwhelming. We can take a step back. It's been out now for a week or so. Now I think cooler heads can prevail and we can really, you know, institutions can work together to, to try to solve those problems and listen to the student need. So it's been a tumultuous couple of weeks for international students and the institutions that support them. Definitely check in with your international student scholars support office to make sure that they're doing okay and find out ways that you can partner with them. If I were a betting man, I would say that this won't be the last revision to the guidance we receive about international students. And as the pandemic continues, we may experience different operational circumstances than those we are anticipating for fall today. Thanks again to Steve Springer from NAFSA. It's always fun to chat with someone from another professional association. And to Jay Ligon and Rob Berwick for sharing their perspectives and their institution's responses to this changing environment. And thank you especially for listening. Black Lives Matter. You can make a difference through your allyship and your anti-racism efforts within your office, at your institution, and in your community. While you're doing that, remember to wear a mask, wash your hands, drink plenty of water, and get some rest. Until next time, I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.